The internet is, is like a, a pipe full of soup. Welcome to You're Wrong About, where we learn about the whole story behind the VH1 countdown. Ooh! Uh? The behind the music of the behind the music. Totally. I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for The Huffington Post. I'm Sarah Marshall. I'm working on a book about the satanic panic. And if you'd like to support the show, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash you're wrong about. And we sell cute t-shirts and mugs and face masks. And there's other ways that you can support us, and we'll have links in the description. And maybe someday I'll troll everybody and write a vegan cookbook called The Satanic Panic, and we'll sell that Oh too. my god. It's eh? <laughs> pretty good, Mike. And today we are talking about Tipper Gore versus Porn Rock. I'm so excited about this. You have no idea. Dude. You have some idea, because I think that you're like, you're bursting with Tipper Gore gossip at this point. 100%. Yeah. This is like our favorite kind of episode because it is the lowest imaginable stakes. <laughs> nobody dies. Nobody gets harmed in any way. The ultimate sort of resolution of this controversy is this is how we got those dumb parental advisory stickers on CDs in the 90s. What about the rights of kids to party, though? I feel like that's probably <laughs> harmed in the end. I mean, why else would they have had to fight for it around this time? Well, what do you know about this whole thing? <sighs> okay. Tipper Gore... At some point in the 80s, for some reason, I presume because she was a mom, stepped onto the national stage and was like, I am very upset about all of the terrible lyrics mm -hmm. that the children are listening to. Mm -hmm. And so we had like a bunch of, I guess, concerned parents and Congress people like getting up and in a deadpan reading like NWA lyrics and stuff like that. That is like phase two of this panic. <laughs> There's a very interesting dichotomy actually between the panic we're going to talk about about porn rock in the 80s mm -hmm. and the panic over gangster rap in the 90s. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so these are two separate panics. So this is yeah. more, I imagine we're going to be talking about wasp lyrics today. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> the contrast is very interesting because this panic is like basically white on white violence. <laughs> this is basically just a bunch of white parents yelling at men in tight pants. Oh. <laughs> It's a moral panic, like it's a straightforward moral panic, but it's also it's within the confines of sort of nice suburban white kids being preyed upon by white bands. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of there's a limit to sort of how much fear you can whip up about that, right? Like it sort of hits a ceiling at a certain point. This is like the tiny break that we took yeah. from racial panic. So it's like we're like racial panic, white flight, the suburbs, and then we're like taking a little breather sitting on the bench, and we're like, let's have a little panic about heavy metal. Let's do Ozzy Osbourne for a minute. Yes. But I mean, at the time, this is the most watched congressional hearing in history. Yeah. This was actually the beginning of senators starting to realize that this is one of the only ways that they can communicate directly with the public oh my God. by holding these basically stunt hearings. They should have a podcast. <laughs> This is also one of the things that comes up in the academic literature about this is that this obviously is not the first moral panic about music, but it is mm -hmm. one of the fastest moral panics. Hmm. So Tipper Gore like starts this organization in May of 1985. Mm -hmm. By November of 1985, there are warning stickers on albums. I bet Ralph Nader is just sitting at home just like eating a big like ice cream straight <laughs> from the carton. Just like... <laughs> 
It's all about connections. <laughs> so what do you know about Tipper Gore, actually? Uh, she's the wife of Al Gore. Mm-hmm. Is that literally it? Literally it. Fair enough. <laughs> That's what I knew going into this. Yeah, everything else <laughs> I say would be a complete guess. I just want to preface this. We're going to be hard on Tipper Gore in this episode. Like, I think that what she was doing was bad and is a straightforward moral panic. But I also, mm-hmm. I don't want to sort of go overboard. She's very open about her struggles with depression that start in 1989. So after this panic is over, her son is hit by a car and almost killed. Mm-hmm. And since then, she's been an advocate for sort of destigmatizing mental illness. She's done all this advocacy work on getting health insurance companies to cover mental illness. She also does like homeless advocacy. Like she has a sort of second act in her career that is much more grounded in the realities of what's actually facing the country. Yeah. So I just want to say, like, I'm not trying to throw out Tipper Gore, like cancel Tipper Gore. This is an episode in her life that I also don't think she is very proud of at this point. Yeah. And I I mean, I think that this is how it is with a lot of aspects of the satanic panic, too. Like people, people come to moral panics with all different kinds of baggage. And some people transparently want to further their careers. Mm -hmm. And some people are concerned parents acting entirely out of fear and love for their children. Yes. It's very clear from this controversy that Tipper Gore is like very obviously smart and hardworking. She's also, as we will see, like quite a good political strategist. And I think that a lot of this was driven by the frustration of finding herself as a senator's wife. Mm -hmm. That, you know, she and Al Gore get married when she's 21. They have their first kid when she's 25. They eventually have four kids. Mm -hmm. As a young couple, she's in college. He's in law school. She's doing photography for the local newspaper. Like, she has basically this career ahead of her. And then when she's 28, her husband runs for Congress. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, her life gets shunted into this, like, congressional wife. Mm -hmm. Your whole life is these miserable parties. And then every once in a while, your husband trots you out on the campaign trail, and you just have to be at stuff. And then he gets a hand job from an aide, and then you have to stand next to him as he apologizes on TV. Yes, like that's the, that's the worst case scenario. And I mean, I think there is something with these these roles that typically go to women. There's there's a scene in the Al Gore biography where they're sort of they're in a limo on the way to one of these you know fundraisers, some sort of event, and Tipper is like, okay, you know, who are we meeting with? What's the purpose of this? Like, brief me on why we're doing this. And Al Gore is like, it, look, it's not rocket science. Just go there and be nice to people. Mm. And it's like, no, it's actually really hard. <laughs> like, this is a very emotionally complex role. Yeah. So basically, that's where she is in 1984 when all this starts. Mm-hmm. Al Gore is the senator from Tennessee. She's been a sort of Congress wife for almost 10 years. Our story begins in December of 1984, when Tipper Gore buys the soundtrack to Purple Rain. So she innocently bought this album for her 11-year-old daughter. Are you familiar with a song called Darling Nikki? Oh my goodness, am I ever. Do you know the, do you, do you know the lyrics? Well, specifically, I know that it's something about the lobby of a hotel, I think. And then it's mm-hmm. something, something. She was masturbating with a magazine. Yes. I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. Yay. Yay. And so she gets offended. She gets annoyed about this. I had no idea that these lyrics were on this album. There's nothing on the cover of the album indicating that it's not suitable for an 11-year-old. To be fair, I think this is a classic 80s parent problem where every year there are like 25 big media properties 
And that is it. Yeah. The PG-13 rating didn't exist until 1984. You know, until like the mid 80s, a PG movie is going to have boobs in it, potentially. And you just have to be like, okay, and like cover your kids eyes. Yeah, there just wasn't that much media. And it just sort of was offered to everybody, which is like really weird. I mean, this is sort of like, to the extent that Tipper Gore has a point, there was not a lot of information mm-hmm. available at the time about what was in the media that people were consuming. And it is called Purple Rain. It isn't called like Minnesota Sex Concert. Yes. <laughs> I mean, one of the things, it's a little weird that Tipper Gore is always seen as the center of this panic because for years, the National PTA, the Parent Teachers Association, had been whipping up panic about rock lyrics. Hmm. So in 1982, they had done a national campaign about another Prince song. It's called Let's Pretend We're Married. And the lyric is, look here, Marsha, I'm not saying this just to be nasty. I sincerely want to fuck the taste out of your mouth. Can you relate? Hmm. What a weird title, though. I know, right? (laughs) This was already sort of in the air. In the 80s, there were Good Morning America segments. There were Newsweek cover stories. The idea of sort of rock music is getting more explicit was bubbling up as a thing that parents were concerned about. Mm. So the way the Parents Music Resource Center gets started is Tipper Gore gets linked up with Susan Baker, who is the wife of the Secretary of the Treasury, James Baker. Mm -hmm. Susan Baker has already been involved in this nationwide campaign that the PTA did earlier in the 80s that didn't really go anywhere. And her crusade started when her daughter heard Madonna's Like a Virgin. Oh, come on. I know. That song's about feelings. There's a whole conversation in Reservoir Talks about it. I know. (laughs) This is a a quote from Susan Baker in an oral history of the PMRC hearings Mm -hmm. that's published in Rolling Stone. She says, the song was like a virgin. My daughter said, Mama, what's a virgin? Oh, my God. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, Madonna sings this song like a virgin touched for the very first time. What's a virgin? I was speechless. Here she was playing with dolls at seven. You can just say a virgin is like the land that Walt Disney bought in Florida when he wanted to make Disney World. It it has not been developed before. There is something interesting about the idea that sort of the concept of a virgin is too much to explain to a seven-year-old. Yeah. I don't know that a seven-year-old can't handle that or that a seven-year-old can't be told what a virgin is. Kids ask where babies come from when they're very small. Yes. If we're talking about sort of the wholesome past that America is built on, then we're talking about a lot of kids growing up on farms and knowing exactly what sex is (laughs) from a pretty young age if they're helping out in any meaningful capacity. Right. So Susan Baker and Tipper Gore get together in May of 1985. Mm -hmm. This time, instead of working through the PTA, they're essentially just going to use their Rolodexes. So for a month, they call up all of the Washington wives that they know and basically start telling them about sort of what's in the rock lyrics, how underregulated this is, how little information there is for parents. And they hold a meeting at a church They tell everybody that, like, we're going to do a presentation at this church in Washington, D.C., and we're just going to sort of make the case against rock and, like, why you should join 
this movement. Wow. A bunch of boomers making the case against rock as I live and breathe. I know. And this is, okay, just warning you, this is basically like this whole episode is like the case against porn rock. Okay. Okay. I'm very fond of porn rock, so I don't feel like my foundations will be shaken very much. It's going to be great. Oh my God. This is going to be good. A lot of this is based on Tipper Gore's 1987 book, Raising PG Kids in an X-Rated Society. I'm going to raise PG-13 kids, I think, or kids with some kind of French rating. (laughs) If you have $4 and like two hours, it is a good way to spend an afternoon. It is a classic moral panic book. I don't know. You're a fast reader, man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's very short. It's only 215 pages, but a lot of those pages are appendices where she lists Mm. the addresses of all of these organizations that you're supposed to send letters to to complain about rock music. She's like, here's my book. I did less work and passed the work on to you. Yes, Side note, she also lists a bunch of organizations that are working on, you know, banning Madonna feeling songs from record stores or whatever. And one of them, which is based on the Mothers Against Drunk Driving model, is bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. Because (laughs) a lot of this depends on sort of banning Satanism and banning the occult. Uh... It's such a great example of how a lot of these moral panic arguments, they don't hold up to sustained attention. (laughs) So the book walks through sort of all the things that Rock is doing to our kids, like sex and drugs and suicide and violence, blah, blah, blah. But in every chapter, the first sort of four or five pages of the chapter are like pretty well argued and pretty tight. And then the last half of the chapter is just like, here's a bunch of stuff. She just just like, like there's one about like sex in music. Where it's like, it's, you know, all these examples from music. And then she's just like, and the kids in the jeans ads are too skinny. And you're like, this doesn't have what? Like, it, it just falls apart. I don't disagree with you, Tipper. But right. why are you wasting my time? I know. My favorite, my favorite chapter in the whole book is she talks about concerts and like the nasty things that rock artists are doing at concerts. They're drinking alcohol on stage and they're sort of okay. obscene things that artists say between their songs at concerts. Fine. But then she has this random anecdote about people being attacked by gangs of youths in the parking lot after a Diana Ross concert. (laughs) And you're like, first of all, let's leave Diana Ross out of this. Secondly, (laughs) that's after the concert, Tipper. It's not, that doesn't have anything to do with song lyrics. This is exactly like so many satanic panic books I have read, where it's just like they just do not have the material for a whole book. They have maybe 80 pages worth. And then they're like, here are 50 pages of satanic symbols. And they're all the logos of bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, okay, Tipper's first argument against porn rock is that it glorifies sex. What is porn rock while we're on the subject? I mean... This is yet another thing with moral panics. Where it's like, what is the thing you're talking about? And they're like, it could be anything. Literally. It could be anywhere. And you're like, no, no, but what is though? And they're like, ah. Half of her book, she says like heavy metal is this dark occult force. Uh-huh. In a couple interviews, she's like, look, it's only, you know, one or 2% of the music. It's obscure. We really want to crack down on the extreme offenders. And then at one point during this national campaign, they release a list of the filthy 15, like the worst offenders. And the list includes Madonna, 
Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper did the Goonies song. I know. Come on. <laughs> this is something that I think is like so typical of moral panics where it's like they change their definitions constantly and they change yeah. what they actually want constantly. It's like, no, no, we just want some small warning labels on a couple songs. Yes. You read what they're actually putting out and it's like, oh, you want to censor Madonna. Yeah. It's like anything that talks explicitly about sex, which is frustrating because like, honestly, the fact that the song She Bop existed when I was a teenager, like 15 years after it came out, that song was still one of the only things that made me feel like I wasn't some kind of a crazy sex fiend when puberty hit. That's the song. That's the song on the Filthy 15. Of course it is. Yeah. It's like one of the most empowering songs in terms of female sexuality that American pop music has ever produced. I know. It gives me good vibrations. <laughs> Okay, do you want me to read you some uh, some choice passages from Tipper Gore's book? I would love that more than almost anything. One of the hallmarks, I think, of these sort of boomer-led panics is that <laughs> boomers will use previously controversial artists as examples of non-controversial things. Yes. So, like, this comes up constantly in the hearing and in Tipper Gore's book. It's like, music has come a long way since Elvis and the Beatles. And you're like, Elvis and the Beatles were really controversial and the same social forces marshaled against them at the time. Well, and also, I guess, the fact that, like, things strike you as moral when they are familiar to you, you know? And you're like, this thing is bad and this other thing is good. And you're like, these things are really functionally the same because, like, one of them is something that you grew up with. Yeah. This paragraph perfectly encapsulates all of this. She says, it's a quantum leap from the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, to Mm -hmm. Prince singing, if you get tired of masturbating, if you like, I'll jack you off. (laughs) It's a long way from the Rolling Stones, Let's Spend the Night Together, which drew protests in its day, to Sheena Easton's Sugar Walls, You Can't Fight Passion When Passion is Hot, Temperatures rise inside my sugar walls. I also think it's like you're just saying things are different, but like you're just relying on that to rile up your reader. And it's like you're not actually explaining to me why this thing is worse. And like, I think it's good to move in a more sexually explicit direction. Like if I'm some kid and I hear a Prince song that says that I'm like, oh, so like my sexual partner may be interested in masturbating me when I get tired. That's really great to know. I'm happy to have that expectation now. Right. Because God forbid teenage girls have like expectations of their sexual partners, right? I know. (laughs) I also think that the comparison of the Rolling Stones' Let's Spend the Night Together to Sheena Easton's Sugar Walls is interesting because if we're talking about an 11-year-old, an 11-year-old would understand the Rolling Stones' Let's Spend the Night Together yeah. As like a sexual thing, whereas I'm not sure an 11 year old would understand what the fuck sugar walls means. Can we hear some sugar walls lyrics? Wait, where's the really bad stuff? Let me take you somewhere you've never been. I can show you things you've never seen. I can make you never want to fall in love again. Come spend the night inside my sugar walls. If I were 11, I would assume this song was about a witch in love with a centaur. Totally. Like, this is like never ending story shit. And this is like, this is part of adolescence, is like, Growing up and rewatching Labyrinth and being mm-hmm. like, oh. This is also a fascinating juxtaposition. Her last example is, she says, where Elvis sang Little Sister about his attraction to his girlfriend's younger sister. Mm. 
Prince now sings, My sister never made love to anyone else but me. Incest is everything it's said to be. That's like one step away from being like, well, Jerry Lee Lewis married his cousin. <laughs> Prince sang something about doing something even grosser with his cousin. And you're like, well, all right. I mean, I'm not sure I 100% agree with your police work there, Tipper. That's from like a 7 to an 8, Tipper. Like that's <laughs> not from like 0 to 60. Right. It's just like, Tipper, you don't have to use every example you can think of. You know? I know. Like some of these things are just brainstorming ideas. Also, this is maybe my favorite example from the entire book. I had to call my boyfriend into the living room. <laughs> she says, consider these lines from Relax by the band Frankie Goes to Hollywood. <sighs> relax, don't do it. When you want to suck or chew it, relax, don't do it. When you want to come. I never knew it was suck or chew it. Wow. Me neither. I always thought it was sock it to it. Also, she's talking about this as a sexual lyric. Suck or chew it? What is being chewed during sex, Tipper? That's what she thinks gay men do, I'm sure. I guess. It's also such a fascinating example to me of the way that people who run these crusades need to collapse context for any of their arguments to work. Yeah. What stands out to me about that excerpt is the first line is, relax, don't do it. Right. She's offended by the fact that they say come, but she's completely ignoring the fact that the entire song is about resisting temptation. I mean, another thing is that, like, nobody... We don't listen to the words of rock songs, like, A, because we can't hear them correctly half the time, and especially couldn't in the 80s when people yeah. listen to things on the radio. I know. And B, because you're just, you're singing, you're grooving, like, we're, you, your, your critical brain isn't super engaged in that time in your life. Yeah. You know, like, no one listens to the lyrics of My Sharona either, and that song plays at gymnastics competitions. See, I didn't even know it had lyrics. <laughs> okay, so I want to do, like, a little meta-analysis here. I read a bunch of typologies of moral panics, and one of the theories for why this moral panic exploded and exploded so quickly in the 1980s is that basically we were overdue for one. Mm -hmm. there's, there's basically three factors that lead to musical moral panics, and they all sort of converge, and then we get a panic, and then we wait 10 years, and they converge, and we get another one. So the first one is the expansion of the teen market. This idea of sort of teens as a demographic that you market to did not exist before World War II. Yeah. Like, teens did not have their own money. They didn't really get allowances. And if they had jobs, they were expected to bring their money to the family. Exactly. And so it was only after the 1950s where America becomes much more prosperous that, hey, wait a minute, teens have money. And because, you know, they're not paying rent or anything else, they actually have a lot of disposable income. And they have access increasingly to automobiles as depicted in Rebel Without a Cause. Yes. And this brings us to the second thing that converges with moral panics is technology. So every time there's been a new musical technology, we get a moral panic like five years later. Fascinating. The big thing in the 1950s, all of this like Elvis shaking his hip stuff was that there were now portable radios that kids could listen to away from their parents and cars. Mm -hmm. Kids were driving around by themselves and they were able to listen to music away from their parents. It wasn't like the vinyl record player in the living room anymore. Hmm. One of the things that comes up a lot in the Tipper Gore hearings is headphones. Yep. The Walkman hit the market in 1979 and Parents talk constantly about, like, I don't know what my kids are listening to. They're sitting yeah. at the dinner table and they have headphones on. I don't know what's going on in there. Which is really interesting because I think that, like, that is a reasonable concern. Oh, yeah. But also, 
Like, kids need privacy, you guys. Yeah, and also, I mean, so much of it is just from, like, what you don't know. You fear what you don't know. And when you don't know yeah. what your kids are listening to... They're learning about their vaginas, and I don't want them to know they yeah. have vaginas until they're 25. And also, another sort of common theme in these musical moral panics is racial anxieties. Mm. So there was a huge moral panic, apparently, about the jukebox when that started getting put into bars. Really? Because... Kids were going to dance with each other and they weren't just going to like slow dance with a partner and maybe your daughter is going to dance with a black guy. That's um, America is just the worst place where like kids are dancing. Yeah. And then it's like every single thing that kids could do. We're like, what if X thing leads to dancing with a, a black kid? Yes. Can't have that. You know, it's just like everything leads back to just the same racial anxiety over and over. It's just like racial anxiety and gender anxiety. That's all we know. Totally. And then we also have another moral panic about music in the 1960s, like 10 years after the Elvis shaking his hip stuff, about the civil rights movement. Mm. That once music starts to get more political, it starts to get anti-Vietnam War, and it starts to get pro-civil rights, we then get another wave of parents freaking out about what kind of music their kids are listening to. Like, whenever you have these racial anxieties and music crossing over to each other or white artists performing traditionally black music and making it more popular, you get these massive white parent freakouts. Yeah. Tipper Gore's kind of painted herself into a corner because she knows that the moral panic over Elvis shaking his hips was silly. So she can't sort of explicitly say just like sex and lyrics is bad. So Mm -hmm. what she does throughout her book is she couches all of this sexual glorifying sex stuff in a moral crisis over teen pregnancy, Mm. which was definitely going on in the 1980s. So it's it's the it's the music that is causing it. Yes. Interesting. This is an excerpt from an abysmal 1985 Time magazine article called Children having children, colon, teen pregnancies are corroding America's social fabric. Oh, no. In 1950, fewer than 15% of teen births were illegitimate. By 1983, more than half were illegitimate. So we're concerned about the teens not getting married and further destroying their lives. I know. And then they quote... Somebody from a Los Angeles adoption agency who says, this is the actual quote, Sarah. She says, unwed motherhood has become so pervasive that we don't even use the term illegitimate anymore. How dare we? (laughs) How dare we stop relentlessly shaming the mothers that aren't married? Like, we're kind of nicer to people? Like, (laughs) is this bad? This sort of the smoking gun in this Time Magazine article that Tipper Gore cites in her book is... Social workers are almost unanimous in citing the influence of the popular media, television, rock music, videos, movies, in propelling the trend toward precocious sexuality. Okay, if the kids are having sex, then I think it's the job of the adults in the room to make sure they're doing so safely, you fucking idiots. I know. And then they quote one of these experts saying, Our young people are barraged by the message that to be sophisticated, they must be sexually hip. They don't even buy toothpaste to clean their teeth. They buy it to be sexually attractive. Teenagers want to have sex with each other, you guys. Like, they have hormones coursing through them. Like, they're throbbing all the time. Yes. It is the adult part of society's job to kind of guide them and help them to do it in a way that stays safe for everybody. Well, this is the thing. Tipper makes a big deal in her book about how America has the highest teen pregnancy rate in the developed world, which is true. Mm -hmm. But all of the studies, which of course she doesn't cite, 
say that basically sexual activity, like the average age at which kids lose their virginity, how much sex they're having as teens, da, 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 that barely varies across mm. the developed world. Like kids in Sweden mm. are not having more sex necessarily. What's different is contraceptive use and contraceptive education. Oh my God, it's a twist. And you can find data on like premarital sex in the 1960s that was like basically the same as it was in the 1990s. This is one of the themes on our show, which is that the, the solution to the problem is highly visible, but no one wants to acknowledge it because doing so would be like beyond our capacity as a society or as a government or whatever. Right. And we're just like, what could the what could the solution be? And, and every few years there's a study or whatever that can be like, it's this. And we're like, ah, yeah. We'll never know. This is from the Time article. It says, changing human behavior is, of course, always an elusive objective. When researcher Douglas Kirby studied the behavioral effects of sex education, he found them to be few and far between. Sex education graduates certainly knew more about reproduction, but that did not significantly affect their habits. There was, however, one important exception. Kirby found that when sex education programs are coupled with efforts to help teenagers obtain contraceptives, the pregnancy rate drops sharply. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, so sex education works for the thing that this article is panicking about. Like, it reduces teen pregnancy, but it doesn't actually keep kids from having sex. They're like, this is an interesting side point, but whatever. Ignore <laughs> it. Move on. I just love it. The point is, Cindy Lauper should not be allowed to make her infernal videos. Like, what? Also, do you want to guess, statistics-wise, what mm-hmm. year teen pregnancies peaked? In America? 1990. 1956. Ah! The year, literally the same year, that Elvis shook his hips on the Milton Berle show and there was a huge freakout over it. Oh, so people were right to be concerned. He made all those kids pregnant. If you look at the trend line of teen pregnancies, it's just like a ski slope. Why can't you just be like, music needs rating, boom, the end. <laughs> like this, we're in a completely different area now. We also have this Time article ends with sort of like, we can't deal with teen pregnancy until we deal with the feelings of loneliness and disaffection among the youth. Like they make it this intractable problem. Which is setting up to be like, we're going to wage this pointless culture war. And then when it doesn't work, we've already created an alibi in advance for ourselves. Exactly. Like the answer to the problem is in this article. Like, why would we try to solve the impossible problem of teens feeling disaffected when we can solve the pretty solvable problem that like Sweden has solved of just giving them access to contraceptives? Like, it's so weird. And it's like the teens will always be sad for the same reason that they need to have sex with each other, which is that their (laughs) brains are rapidly expanding and they have hormones coursing through their bodies and they're growing inches as they sleep. Yes. Teens are very fragile. They need to be taken extra special care of or they might shoot somebody. Ooh, that gets us to our next thing. Yay. Yay. Okay, so the second reason why Tipper Gore thinks porn rock is bad is because it causes crime. I knew it. This is like one of the few places in the book where she's actually correct that crime rates were going up in the 1980s. Because they peaked like the year Law and Order started. That's how I always remember it. Okay, so here is an excerpt from her book which you think is going to go in one direction, but goes in a different direction. So here we go. You know, she's talking about like the sort of teen homicide rates are spiking and there's all like actual legitimate statistics. And then she says, in California, the governor's task force on youth gang violence reported that an estimated 50,000 teens belong to gangs in the Los Angeles area alone, 
many of them organized around heavy metal and punk rock music. (laughs) (laughs) Where it's like my racial radar is up. I'm like, oh, here Mm -hmm. it comes. Tipper's going to say something problematic. You're like a dog who like sees his owner putting his shoes on and you're like, I think you're going up for a walk today. And then he like goes into the backyard and you're like, oh my God, that was an unexpected permutation. And then she's like, oh, it's a bunch of like heavy metal and punk rock fans. That is the reality depicted in Repo Man. (laughs) They're going to all, they're going to go order sushi and not pay. (laughs) But so I actually spent like quite a bit of time looking into why did the crime rates spike in the 1980s? Is it because of the birth of home gaming? (laughs) It was Duck Hunt. (laughs) There's like the sort of the standard response is that it's gang related violence and it's sort of the crack epidemic that like cities got a lot more violent when crack hit the streets, basically. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that there's not a lot of evidence for that. Mm -hmm. First of all, as we discussed in many episodes now, the idea of a gang related homicide is just one where the cops think that either the perpetrator or the victim was in a gang. Yeah. You get a lot more of those in the 1980s and the 1990s, but also... Canada had just as bad of a crack epidemic as America did, but didn't have hmm. any rise in homicides. Fucking Canada. Fucking Canada. What they now think is that the reason crime rates went crazy in the mm-hmm. 1980s was guns. Uh... So in the 1970s, the ATF got its budget for enforcement cut. So all of a sudden, the ATF was doing few sort of like gun running investigations. They were doing a lot fewer compliance checks on stores for selling guns to kids that were under 18. Yeah. There's extra guns being produced. Like guns just flood into American cities during the 1980s. Mm-hmm. One of the things, one of those amazing numbers I came across in the early 80s, like a dirt cheap, maybe stolen, maybe used, whatever, nine millimeter handgun was 400 bucks. Oh, shit. I know. Wow. But then by the end of the decade, the dirt cheap nine millimeter handgun is less than 100 bucks. It's like 95 bucks. Well, there you go. Exactly. And it's easier to have multiples, too. And then there's just like more around, right? So you can get a used yeah. one easier. You can steal one easier. Ambient guns. Yeah. As we've discussed, most homicides in America are like two dudes getting in a bar fight or like one guy shoves another guy or one guy sleeping with another guy's girlfriend and they get in one of these arguments and one or both dudes has a gun. And someone gets hot. Yes. And so you just think of like the number of sort of altercations between dudes is probably pretty standard. But then when you just flood like two, three, four times the number of those dudes have guns versus not have guns – just a larger number of those interactions is going to become deadly. So, like, that's what was happening. Right. But, of course, Tipper doesn't show any interest in any of this. And she also feloniously oversimplifies another thing that she blames on porn rock, teen suicide. (sighs) Yeah. It's actually true that in 1950, four times more adults killed themselves than teenagers. Mm. And then by 1980, the rates are basically the same. Mm. So there's a massive rise in teen suicides as there's a massive fall in adult suicides. Oh, wow. That it's almost all in rural states. It's almost all men. By the time we get to 1990, youth suicides in Wyoming, South Dakota, Montana, and New Mexico are four times higher than they are in Rhode Island. Hmm. But like she's not interested in that because then then you then have to establish that they're listening to more heavy metal in rural areas than in cities. <laughs> she talks about this song. Have you heard of this? The, the, the Ozzy Osbourne song, Suicide Solution? Oh, yeah. There's apparently there's a kid in California, a 19-year-old who killed himself 
while listening to Ozzy Osbourne's album, mm-hmm. from the title of the song, Suicide Solution, it's like, okay, well, he's obviously suggesting suicide as a solution, right? But then, of course, it's like the most cursory glance at these lyrics. He's talking about suicide solution, like solution like a liquid. He's talking about alcohol. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. opening lines of the song are, wine is fine, but whiskey's quicker. Suicide is slow with liquor. Take a bottle and drown your sorrows. Then it floods away tomorrows. Mm -hmm. The song is like pretty thuddingly anti-suicide. Yeah, anti-drinking yourself to death. Yeah. So Ozzy Osbourne and CBS Records are sued over Suicide Solution. The case is thrown out because, come on. But then (laughs) in 1985, actually a month after the PMRC hearings, Judas Priest is also sued for causing a suicide. Mm -hmm. But then the Judas Priest one is really weird because a judge rules that the lyrics are protected by the First Amendment. So you can't actually make the case that this Judas Priest album caused a kid to commit suicide just sort of on its face. So their entire case has to rest on backmasking. Right. That there are subliminal messages in the music. Yeah. The argument that they get in court is that there's backwards lyrics that say, do it and let's be dead. Okay. Judas Priest's manager at some point, he takes the stand and he says, if we were going to inject subliminal messages, they would say buy seven copies, not telling a couple kids to kill themselves. Yeah, or like vote (laughs) for Carter or something. So that also gets thrown out. Like it doesn't it doesn't oh, go good. anywhere, but it's a big it's a big media circus. Yeah, and I also learned about it on a VH1 countdown. I mean, to the extent that we actually have to explain the rise in teen suicides from 1950 to 1980, a lot of it is just statistical. Like things are being counted differently? Yeah, because a lot of kids killed themselves in the 1950s and their parents didn't want to say that it was suicide because there was so much stigma around suicide. Yeah. They would call it an accident if a kid took too many pills. Right. Another sort of theory for it is that it's many more kids living in divorced households. Hmm. There's just less supervision. That when you're being raised in a single-parent house... There just isn't someone around. So if you take a lot of sleeping pills, Mm -hmm. people might not notice you for a few hours. So according to this really interesting article that I found, every successful teen suicide represents about 400 attempts. Mm. So all it takes is just like for those attempts to become like a little bit more successful and you'll have a massive rise in teen suicides. So basically because you have more guns in the home and you have less parental supervision – It just basically ticks upward a little bit the number of suicide attempts that become successful suicides. And that's what gets you this much higher rate. Yeah, that makes sense. It at least makes more sense than it is the music they are listening to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is a pretty low bar. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready to talk about Satan? I'm so ready to talk about Satan. Is he going to be speaking in poems again? Uh, Absolutely. I'm sending you a link. Yay. Have you heard of Venom? Have you heard of this band? Of course. I love Venom. Okay. This song is called Possessed and it's on Tipper's Filthy 15 list. This is so Michelle remembers. Dude, I know. The rhymes, I know. Yeah, look at my eyes and you will see fire is burning inside of me. It's like, did they read Michelle's book? (laughs) Do you want to uh, read some of the choice lyrics out loud? Oh, wow. Okay. You want to pick the the most satanic ones? Through many a tormented night prevail, thy exorcisms shall but fail. Though crucifix doth burn my flesh, I shall not yield to you unless I die. I am possessed by all that is evil. The death of your God I demand. I spit at the virgin you worship and sit at my Lord Satan's left hand. Mm -hmm. And then imagine your little daughter coming to you 
and saying, Mom, what's a virgin? I know. <laughs> I mean, you know more about this than I do, but this does feel like straightforwardly satanic to me. Yeah. And the most like hammer horror, like Peter Cushing movie, Michelle yeah. remembers, like guy wearing a ring, like the most basic Satan kind of way. And it also feels baiting to me, you know, like oh, totally. yeah. people are aware that we're having a satanic panic at this time. Like if I were a metal band, I would most certainly be writing like on the nose lyrics about how I'm friends with Satan, because then people will be like, that band is friends with Satan. And I'll be like, yes, keep talking about me, please. Yeah, that's the thing. Like one of the lines is Satan is my master incarnate. Hail praise to my unholy host. No ambiguity. They're like, we got to just if we're going to it's going to be a filthy 15, you guys. If it were yeah. a filthy 25, we could be ambiguous. <laughs> but like, we got to just go for it. On some level, Tipper is right to be like, some of these songs are satanic. And it's like, yep. Well, I think what I love about this song is that it's like, like a Disney villain song. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not like selling you on Satanism at all. It's like, I love Satan. And you're like, cool. You don't seem to be interested in getting me interested in Satan. In fact, you make it sound gross. <laughs> it's not like, come be a Satanist. You can have sex and, and order sushi and not pay. It's like, I'm a Satanist. I'm gross. Fuck you. And yes. you're like, great. You know, it's like listening to Be Prepared. Like that doesn't inspire me to lead a war against the other lions. Have you heard of this ACDC killing? Uh, was this the one where the kid was on a bunch of PCP? Yes. And he like stabbed his friend in the eyeballs? Yes. So this is an excerpt from a really good article called Highway to Hell by Justin Garcia that sort of runs mm. through all of the occult undertones of this music and all of the cases that came out. So he says, in June 1984, a 17-year-old Long Island Satanist and drug dealer named Ricky Casso brutally murdered accomplice Gary Lowers in a Suffolk County forest by stabbing him multiple times and gouging out his eyes. Mm -hmm. At the time of his arrest, Casso was wearing an ACDC t-shirt and media coverage of the case publicized Casso's keen interest in heavy metal music. Despite the fact that Casso and Lowers were both high on hallucinogenic drugs at the time of the murder and that Lowers owed Casso money for drugs he had previously stolen, mm -hmm. local police identified the murder as satanic due to graffiti that read 666 and Satan rules near the murder site. Mm. So it's one of those things where it's like there's much more proximate and convincing causes for this murder available. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, he owed him money and like they were both on PCP. Yes. But then it's like we immediately go to the exotic explanation. And it's just like a tragedy when a teenager kills another teenager and like you're, you know, the only response you can have to that is like, wow. That's really sad and fucked up. And like, how did that happen? And how can we try and prevent that from happening again? But, you know, how much better if you can just be like, "'Twas Satanism." I know. <laughs> and like, this, of course, sparks a bunch of tedious debate about ACDC and what ACDC actually stands for. The rumor is that ACDC stands for Antichrist Devil's Children. Yeah, it stands for alternating current and direct current. Yeah, exactly. And like their logo has a little lightning bolt in it. Because like one of the band guys saw it in his sister's sewing machine, right? Yes. Yeah. It's just this weird thing that like if you somehow crack the code that ACDC mm -hmm. stands for something satanic, like, oh, it must be true. Like, well, wait right. a minute, just because they have a satanic name doesn't mean that, like, they're responsible for a murder. It's like, there's this weird obsession in moral panics with cracking codes. And, like, what yeah. does this stand for? And, like, what does a symbol mean? You can see how QAnon is, like, growing in some manure that has been ripening and steeping yes. for all these years. Yeah, here the, the thing about this murder, 
which always gets cited in my satanic panic books. They're like, here's a satanic murder. And you're like, this is like a really sad, fucked up teenager murder is what this is. We have a lot of those as a country and we should talk about that and try Mm -hmm. and muster proportionate response to it. But like, don't sell this to me as a satanic murder. And also don't do it with the weird implication that this kid being a self-proclaimed Satanist means that actual Satan was involved, I which know. often feels implied. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to be too mean about this, but the fact that this is being run by Christians who believe that the Bible is true and believe that Satan is a real figure, mm-hmm. like there is some of that weird magical thinking going on. Yeah, It reminds me of the kids in elementary school that couldn't celebrate Halloween because their parents were afraid that like dressing up in like scary costumes invites spirits like as robocop will it invite the spirit (laughs) of robocop another story that tipper gore is obsessed with and she mentions like three times in her book is ozzy osbourne biting the head off the bat another thing i learned about on vh1 my my days of pretending to be sick and watching vh1 countdowns are like really coming in handy so he is in des moines iowa it is 1982 he was on stage one of His fans in the crowd had bought a bat at a pet store and it died like three days previously. Why was a pet store selling a bat? That's the real scandal here. I don't know. It was the 80s. There was no funding for the ATF. You could buy anything. I don't know what was going on. I guess. Yeah. But he basically has this dead, like sort of half decomposing bat in his suit jacket. And then he throws it up on stage because people are throwing stuff at an Ozzy Osbourne concert. Ozzy Osbourne thinks it's a stuffed bat. Oh, Ozzy. Right, because why would somebody throw a real bat on stage? <laughs> so then he bites the head off this real fucking bat and is like, ugh, and then spits it yeah, out. Yeah, because gross. <laughs> and also they carry rabies. Yes, and then, so he does the rest of the show and then immediately they have to rush him to the hospital to get a rabies shot. Oh, what a pro that he just kept playing. You've got like decomposed bat blood in your mouth you're trying to sing tipper keeps bringing this up as like the evil mastermind ozzy osbourne and it's like no he's just kind of a doofus who didn't expect this weird thing to happen he's her barbosa yes (laughs) next reason that rock music is bad that she says in her Uh book is i'm kind of gonna skip this one she spends a lot of time talking about how it promotes drug use Mm -hmm. the thing is teen drug use rates were falling steadily throughout the 80s like they've fell steadily during that period yeah they sort of spiked up a bit in the 90s but like Mm -hmm. they were deliberately falling at that time and the only interesting thing about this case is that it's the only time in her entire book that she mentions country music (laughs) i think it's weird to complain about sort of misogyny and sex and alcohol and all this other stuff and like Mm -hmm. they have that in other genres of music too so listen to this one sentence this is the only time that she discusses country music in her entire book Mm -hmm. country music also contains many favorable references to alcohol but by and large young kids are not the mainstay of that particular genre's audience kids listen to country music tipper for goodness sakes okay tipper she's like whatever there's also some good conspiracy theory stuff about because Al Gore is the senator from Tennessee, she can't go after Nashville. So she Ah. has to stay off of country music because, like, that's a big economic driver in the state. Yeah. So her last case against heavy metal music is it's misogynistic. Mm. 
And like it fucking is. I'm going to send you some album covers. Hang on. I am not going to post this on our website, but you can Google to them very easily. So this one is called Savage Grace. Oh, God. Right? Uh, yeah. This is really, yeah, it's bad. this is it's unpleasant really bad. to look at. Okay. Yeah. And Oh, and the album is called Master of Disguise. Yeah. Okay. So it's got a cop with a shit-eating grin mm-hmm. in the foreground. He's wearing those cop sunglasses so you can't see his eyes. And then behind him, there is a terrified-looking woman who is naked mm-hmm. and I believe handcuffed to his motorcycle Yeah, and is also gagged mm-hmm. and is looking at him in a terrified fashion. It's yeah. just like, this reminds me of the thing in Spinal Tap where they, the bandmates don't know the difference between the word sexy and the word sexist. <laughs> I mean, this is like a, this is like a, a rape photo, basically. Like, yes, it's, it's implying that he's kidnapped her. She is bound and gagged. She's obviously terrified and he is laughing. Like, it's bad. Yes. Here's another one. This one is from Venom. You may have seen this one. It's called Nightmare. Yeah, I yeah. have seen this one. It's, it's bad. So gross. Yeah, okay. So this is it's so gross. Yeah. It's a woman. It's like a gross cartoon of a woman, which also is a hallmark of this musical genre. Yes. And she is uh lying atop her bed, hanging off the edge of it, and there is a gross, scary little leprechaun Satan man perched atop her. And he's got his claw hand on her boob and she's completely naked, obviously. It's not just overt. It's just like, it's like baroquely overt. It's like, Mm -hmm. this album is about raping women. Yeah. And we are not just going to say that. We are going to depict it in the art and we are going to depict it lovingly. I mean, she, I, I don't think her case on this is particularly sophisticated, but it is. I mean, most of these bands are dudes and we have talked about misogyny and rock and roll before yeah the music industry is a nightmare for women the comedy industry the movie industry the politics industry Mm -hmm. like these things are all relevant it's easy to sort of dunk on tipper gore for like her bad arguments but i also think that we should acknowledge that she does have a point when it comes to some of this stuff Mm -hmm. again like it's funny that a lot of these problems are the problems of a society that has not yet been able to do what we have at least attempted to do now, which is to live in this very, these very balkanized technological worlds. Right. Where everyone, we all have our own media and we all have to be the programming executives of our own homes, which mm-hmm. I, you know, I will always argue that that's annoying to have to do. Like that's not, that shouldn't be my job. So I'm going to send you one more. One of the reasons why her critique of misogyny, I think, in the book doesn't really land, is that it is itself extremely misogynistic. So this is another album cover that that really offends her. Mm. This is called Wow by Wendy O. Williams. Oh, nice. Oh, I love it. Right? Yes. Yeah. It reminds me of like the Kate Bush babushka outfit, actually. Yeah. Okay. So she's wearing a cutoff, like ribbed white men's undershirt. It's cut off right below the boob. And then mm-hmm. she has, it looks like it's spray painted silver, like a leather harness. Mm-hmm. And then she's wearing black panties and like a silver, presumably leather 
I don't know how to, well, like, what kind of garment is this? It's like an outerwear underwear thing. Yeah, I don't know what exactly. It's sort of like a chastity belt. Yeah, and it's got, like, metal. Again, it's, like, studded with metal bits. It's, like, industrial looking and Mm -hmm. cool. And it, like, it's a very road warrior outfit. Yes. I cannot stress enough how hot this looks. Yes. I mean, it's... This is basically a road warrior bikini. Yeah. And there's a fire behind her and she yeah. like doesn't give a shit. You know, you're just like, yes, let me hear this road yeah. warrior music. So it is very jarring in Tipper Gore's book to have her bring up these examples of like rape imagery. And then yeah. a woman is in a bikini on an album. Well, they're both sexual. So and then like among the sort of examples in this chapter that she uses one of them i forget the song but it's some female artist singing about like i want his seven inches or something like that Mm. and it's like that's not misogynistic that's just like a woman saying i want sex a woman saying she knows how many inches she wants exactly like that's that's just in a different category tipper and so she's like she's toggling back and forth between these things that are like misogynistic and these things that are just like women talking about liking sex Mm -hmm. and you're like let's separate out let's do headings tipper right and this is also kind of the climate i remember coming of age in in the 90s this idea of like let's protect the children and it just all got sort of balled together like hibernating snakes you know because it was like let's protect the kids from stuff that is like misogynistic Mm -hmm. and also let's protect the kids let's protect the girls Mm -hmm. from the idea of like being sexual and it's like well yeah my sort of my beef with this entire thing and what we see in some of these art-based moral panics is the total collapse of context. Yeah. The sort of the moral content of a song or a book or a movie is much more about sort of the underlying message that's being conveyed. Mm-hmm. And so much of like this method of cultural criticism is like, we're going to take one line of a song and then say that it's bad. Like mm-hmm. one of the examples that she gives in this chapter of like rock and violence and how it's promoting violence against women is from a who song where they Mm -hmm. say my love will cut you like a knife it's the most generic lyric i mean that's like a brian adams lyric too like who cares it's like a dan brown chapter opening yeah that's not a violent that's just a simile (laughs) but then it's like a lot of older songs have like absolutely atrocious moral content yes what is the Beatles song that like I think she was 16, if you know what I mean. Well, she was just 17, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. And it's like, and of course, the context is you're supposed to be like, I do know what you mean. (laughs) So that's it. That's the case. That's the case against porn rock. That's why porn rock is bad. All right. Now we know. I I think that porn rock should have a choice between death or exile. So we're going to do... A little more sort of walking up to what happens before the hearing. And then next Mm -hmm. episode, we're going to talk about the hearing itself. Okay. Basically, what happens after this is the Parents Music Resource Council goes on a six-month-long awareness-raising campaign. Mm -hmm. They give interviews to journalists. So there's eventually 150 news stories written about this panic. And they go and they give talks to like various, you know, libraries, PTAs. Mm -hmm. The only sort of thing of substance that they do is they write a bunch of letters to, you know, radio stations and especially the Record Industry Association of America, basically demanding that they put a rating system on albums. So their proposed system is every album will get a specific rating for what the lyrics contain. So you get an X for sexually explicit lyrics. You get a D slash A for songs that glorify drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. You get a V for songs that glorify violence. And you get an O for songs that glorify the occult. Great. Over this summer, they get a ton of 
mainstream support. So one of their major financial backers, This Is Dark, is one of the Beach Boys, Mike Love. Oh. We also get Paul McCartney contributing to this. Yeah, I get what you're saying. That is dark. And then Coors the beer company, provides the PMRC with offices. Oh. Like the irony of an alcohol company. Yeah. <laughs> like contributing something to like save the youth. They're like, could we get some more songs about cores? <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's also, this is also bad, the American Medical Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics uh-huh. both like sign statements and get on board. You know, kids need something that is their own thing. And if their parents try and invade that, it'll just make it more intense. Doctors, man, come on. Yeah. So, okay, we're going to do a little game. Okay. So I am going to send you two paragraphs and you have to read them and then guess which one is from Tipper Gore and which one is from George F. Will, the conservative columnist? Oh, goodness. Mm-hmm. Email these to you. Hang on. I hope you keep your little mm-hmm's in sometimes. Well, okay. Paragraph A. The change in popular culture coexisted with the breakdown of the nuclear family. When the nuclear family started to decay, there was also a breakdown in the immunization system to evil. What the hell does that mean? Since children today lack the stable family structure of past generations, they are more vulnerable to role models and authority figures outside established patriarchal institutions. I see the family as a haven of moral stability, while popular music is a poisonous source infecting the youth of the world with messages they cannot handle. Good stuff. Top drawer bullshit. (laughs) Paragraph B. Rock music has become a plague of messages about sexual promiscuity, bisexuality, (laughs) incest, sadomasochism, (laughs) Satanism, drug use, alcohol abuse, and constantly misogyny. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) The lyrics regarding these things are celebratory. They celebrate bisexuality. I know. Can you imagine? Encouraging, or at least desensitizing. (laughs) By making these subjects the common currency of popular entertainment, the lyrics drain the subjects of their power to shock. Their power to make people blush. The concern is less that children will emulate the frenzied behavior described in porn rock than that they will succumb to the lassitude of the demoralized. Literally, the demoralized. Unmoral. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm going to say paragraph B is George Will because it's the loopier one. (laughs) On pure stylistic points. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You are correct. Yay. Well, this is the one that also includes bisexuality on a list of with incest, sadomasochism and Satanism. (laughs) And I just feel that our tipper wouldn't do that. (laughs) That was very astute. It is the most left field thing in a, a sentence that like has a lot going on. One thing you can say about George Will, there is always a lot going on, like several <laughs> times each paragraph. You're like, you want to run that by me again there, George? <laughs> so this is sort of like the closing of this episode is about the detour that the Democratic Party took mm-hmm. in the 1980s with this shit. Every state except for Minnesota goes for Reagan in 1984. Mm -hmm. And so everything that the Democrats do after this is based around like we have to appeal to conservative voters. Yeah, there's nothing like behaving in a defensive position as your defining party trait for 40 years. Like what could go wrong? And so 
we have to repeat all of their framing. We have to sort of construct problems the same way that they construct them, but then propose different solutions. It just sucks. It's like being a white chocolate salesman in a chocolate convention. You're just, yes. ne- it's just never going to get you anywhere. Yeah. Tipper Gore is putting out rhetoric that is literally indistinguishable from conservative moral panic bullshit. Mm. Every interview you watch with her, she's always like, now I'm a liberal. I love rock and roll, but... And then it's just George F. Will shit. Well, and it's like selling someone a by-definition crappier version of the thing that they already have. Because you're like, Mm -hmm. I'm appealing to you by using the same template, Mm -hmm. but I'm taking out the things that you like. And it's like, you just have to make it its own thing. Yes. There's actually this fascinating debate between William F. Buckley, you know, the conservative Mm -hmm. commentator, and Tipper Gore. Oh, boy. Where she's trying to make her case... And she's always saying, you know, I don't want to censor any music. I think the free market should take care of this. Mm -hmm. She can't make a sentence without all of these caveats. Mm -hmm. And then we cut to William F. Buckley and he just says, I think this music is pornography and it should be banned. Mm -hmm. This is why you never win with this. Because you can't out moral panic the Republicans. Uh, yeah, you can't. And they're not bound by fact, and they never really yeah. have been. He has a very clear message, like a message that I find completely abhorrent, but is very easy to summarize. Whereas Tipper is like, this music is terrible, and this, you know, she she classifies it as a form of child abuse. Mm. But we shouldn't do anything about it, and we should just, like, let the record companies rate it. Nobody wants to sound like Jimmy Carter, because everyone knows yeah. that if you sound like Jimmy Carter, you're dead in the water. Well, this is the thing, is like... All of this happens at the same time as the rise of the evangelical right. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why Tipper Gore's book sold so well is because they would sell it at Christian conferences Mm. and focus on the family was selling copies of her book. Mm. And Pat Robertson was talking about it on the 700 Club. So she's in in bed with, with the evangelicals. Yes. So what she's doing is, you know, we can ally with them on this one issue and we can reinforce word for word their narrative of American history where the institution of the family has been destroyed. This is like fire and brimstone preacher stuff. Mm -hmm. We can reinforce all of that just on this one issue. And it's not going to have any other repercussions. As soon as we get the warning labels, we're done. Human beings are intrinsically bad, but the solution is at our homes. But I won't say how. Goodbye. Exactly. I mean, I do like the thing I'm most sympathetic to is like, we got to protect our kids from these like, in some cases, really kind of rough and toxic, like depictions of, you know, sexual violence. Yeah. But also like kids encounter stuff that's inappropriate for them. And that's also just part of childhood and mm-hmm. it's okay that it happens sometimes like kids yeah. also are pretty good at like if they have the freedom to like push away something that they don't like like they'll pretty much do that i mean so much of this is about scapegoating there's some really good historical literature on this that one of the things that you see across moral panics is you just want to blame all of society's ills on something specific. Mm-hmm. It's harder to say, like, you know, generally stagnating wages and the country becoming more conservative and, you know, house prices going up and all this sort of inchoate stuff. It's so much easier to just say, like, all of the problems with childhood today are yeah. like twisted sister's fault. These children should take it. They should continue taking it. <laughs> That was good. Thank you. (laughs) We're going to talk about that song so much next week. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 